at the Alan Turing Institute, our mission is to make great leaps in data science and artificial intelligence research in order to change the world for the better. This podcast explores the research, ideas and technologies behind a data revolution with the people responsible for shaping our future. Welcome to the Turing Podcast. and welcome to the Turing Podcast. Today we're speaking with Jeff Goodall, who is a Senior Research Associate in the Financial Computing and Analytics Group at University College London, as well as being an Associate of UCL's Centre for Blockchain Technologies and the LSE Systemic Risk Centre. I've invited Jeff on the podcast after he gave a really interesting talk to one of my project groups at the Alan Turing Institute, in which he strongly, strongly advocated for privacy as human rights in the digital world in particular with regard to digital identity, which is a topic we've covered on the podcast before. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ed. Good afternoon. I thought I'd just start off by if you could tell us a bit about the kind of the scale of data collection occurring in the world today. Um, I've heard the term surveillance capitalism being used before. So what does that mean to you? So, so first of all, I, I think the scale of data collection is, of course, large, uh, ultimately because when information is produced and received, it is generated and generally doesn't get deleted. Uh, so if we think about the, uh, uh, the, 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 the order of magnitude of how many exabytes people generate uh, on, on, a, on a daily basis, we, we, we actually get to see uh, that, that this is a, a very widespread phenomenon. Uh, it's taking place not only in the context of, uh, of people's internet browsing habits, but, uh, but also much more generally than that uh, in terms of their use of electronic services, uh, including public services such as uh, wireless networks and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and mobile phones, uh, all the way to uh, uh, metro systems and, uh, and, and ID cards that are used in a, in a wide variety of, uh, uh, of applications throughout the world. Yeah, it's it, it's uh, it's the world of big data, and it's something that we like to think about a lot at the Alan Turing Institute. Um, but yeah, that data isn't always used for necessarily the purposes that we might like. Um, I I just want to quote back to you um, something that I saw in, in one of the slides uh, from the talk you gave before, um, and it's a quote from Mark Zuckerberg back in two thousand and nine. And the quote is, uh, so starting the quote, you have one identity, the days of you having a different image for your work friends or co-workers and for the other people you know are probably coming to an end pretty quickly. And then he goes on to say, having two identities for yourself is, a, is an example of a lack of integrity. So that's the end of the quote. Um, and my question is, firstly, before we get into like talking about your own research, but um, at what point in your own life and career did you realise someone with a computer science background but who also thinks about human rights um, that there was a particular philosophy at play here with the big tech companies and social media companies and so on yes i i think that's right i i think that the philosophy was uh at one level uh that 
uh, that the world is improved by transparency. And if you have nothing to hide, then you have nothing to fear. Uh, and therefore, we should just live transparent lives. Uh, and that that would make uh, everything better because of the uh, of the panopticon effect uh, that people behave better uh, when uh, when they are being watched. Uh, you know, certainly uh, here in, in London, you know, th this is not a, uh, we're not new to this idea. I mean, Jeremy Bentham wrote about the Panopticon uh, in uh, in the early 1800s, two centuries ago, uh, and uh, and and that was broadly the idea. If people know that that they might be currently being watched, uh, then then they will change their behavior, uh, presumably towards something that the people doing the watching would would want. Now, uh, we know that this idea of uh, 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 you have nothing to uh, hide means nothing. You, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. We know that that odious uh, philosophy was used uh, during the Second World War uh, in in the following century, uh, and uh, of course was part of the inspiration for uh, George Orwell's uh, work on the topic. Um, but uh, more, more generally, I think we have this idea, this philosophy that people will just be uh, uh, better uh, better off if they uh, if they just share everything and. And I think also there was a bit of a concern that people don't want to uh, engage in uh, in in communication with uh, with with other people uh, so much as they they might want to uh, use the internet as a, a kind of a, a a a way to communicate a way to improve their communication because they might be nervous uh, speaking with with people directly they might be nervous with the sort of psychological effect of of uh, believing that other people are watching maybe if they're using the internet they they might feel that they're in the privacy of their own home so maybe they would be uh, be more likely to uh, share uh, aspects of themselves. All of these factors, I think, were in play uh, in, in various forms. Uh, and, uh, and I think that uh, when Mark Zuckerberg described his, his motivation uh, for the various policies that, uh, that Facebook had used, I, I think that he was being honest about the the goals of uh, of Facebook's project, which was to really make it so that people have one face to prevent present to the world. Uh, ultimately, because if people present the same face to everyone, then there's authenticity that is embedded in the idea that uh, if I look for information about Jeff, I know that whatever he's saying on Facebook is the same Jeff that everyone else is saying. And uh, it's a, a bit ironic because Facebook itself provides a medium for looking different to different people uh, and for providing different information to different people and indeed for allowing uh, the, the various media platforms that use its, its uh, identity services to allow those platforms to look different for different users. This, this idea seems to underscore the idea that if you're uh, if you're in control of the ability to make sh to force people to show to have one identity, then you're really in uh, in a position of power, uh, and you, as an organization, are better off having many identities for exactly the same reason. Because having many identities is power, and forcing other people to have fewer identities is is a, a mechanism of control. And I think Shoshana Zuboff uh, highlights this very well, uh, not only in her, uh, her recent book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, but also in other articles that she's written over the years, including uh, the article that is known as Big Other, where she first described this phenomenon. It's interesting that, yeah, you mentioned her and yeah, Rachel in her first question mentioned the surveillance capitalism term. I guess the thing that's different from the people who you mentioned 100 year years ago 
who and you know people like Orwell, they were obviously thinking of, well, all of this is going to come from the state. Um, whereas what we're seeing now is, yeah, I guess surveillance, surveillance capitalism is a good way of describing it. It's you know companies collecting data on people, and what they do with it maybe just be for profit, but that could also <laughs> could also have downsides, um, including you know selling that information to governments or. Um, or whoever else wants the highest bidder, I guess. I thought it was quite interesting uh, that you were talking about the kind of the idea that what Mark, um, Mark Zuckerberg was saying was like honest in the aims of Facebook and having um, like this idea of having like a one identity and like it makes it more people more authentic. So do you think, because um, it's just an idea I've been sort of hearing about quite a lot, like this idea that like sort of the big tech companies weren't, coming out with like evil intent in terms of data collection but rather like sort of good concepts that were implemented badly or have had like unpredictable ramifications and do you kind of sit into that camp or do you kind of feel like there was more that the the idea of having this like data collection was kind of the concept to begin with yeah i I think what you're asking is was was it really the original motivation of uh of mark zuckerberg and his team to collect data and provide a means of control for whoever happened to want it the high the highest bidder basically uh as we've seen with the cambridge analytica scandal and all of these other instances it's not the facebook staff themselves trying to manipulate people, but it's rather the, the collection of information and the, the brokering of, of, uh, of data and, uh, and uh, analytics that, uh, uh, that, that are derived from the data that are collected by Facebook that gives rise to this. I, 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 think, that, uh, you know, I, I think that there is evidence that it's not about Facebook explicitly wanting to, uh, uh, to manipulate people in some particular way, but I think it's a much more, uh, uh, perhaps a much colder calculation uh, that if you're selling, uh, that, that if you uh, uh, are, are collecting these kinds of data, it's a mechanism to, uh, to promote advertising. That's how, uh, that's how people make money. Uh, this uh, phenomenon, as, uh, as uh, Shoshana Zuboff described, I think really didn't start inside Facebook. It started at, in Google, actually, uh, in uh, around 2003, 2004, uh, and then uh, um, uh, and, and then uh, uh, ultimately was uh, was was brought into Facebook subsequently. So so I'm I'm pretty confident that this model of uh, selling analytics uh, was not uh, necessarily Facebook's original intent. However, uh, I would I would add a caveat to that uh, to say that the uh, to say that this idea that individual persons uh, should present one face to the world. Uh, or this idea that we're creating this this uh, uh, this this set of linkages, this sort of reference point for people, it's it's hard to imagine that that this goal could be undertaken without some degree of thoughtfulness about what the implications would be. Uh, in in the real the real world, uh, we we interact by by sharing different faces with different people in different contexts. Uh, I control the narrative about who I am and about what I stand for and about um, and about what my habits are, what my affect is, all of these sorts of things. I, I have a, a, a quite a substantive control over that representation of myself that I share with different people. And I'm absolutely a different person with my family than with my friends. And uh, and and with my colleagues, I might be several different people uh, just in those contexts, and I think most people are. But enter the Facebook platform, and suddenly everyone is down to the the uh, the, the least common denominator—a phenomenon that's called context collapse. 
Uh, and I think that this this context collapse phenomenon must not have been far from the minds of people uh, thinking about forcing people into this kind of uh, 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 sort of viewport where you can only see one perspective on someone and that it is, it is the entire perspective, whatever that means. This idea of uncovering the real you, uh, so to speak. It definitely sounds that way, Jeff, from, from the quote that we just gave from Zuckerberg, the, the fact that he said that having multiple identities is a lack of integrity. So that would seem to back up your idea that, yeah, from the start, there's definitely some, um, you know, ideas at play here rather than just responding to the incentives that his company faces. Um, that being said, the the one that the that I can think of, the incentive that is, in, is at play here, which we haven't commented on yet, is that... Um, there's all this talk of, you know, they need to limit the trolling and the bots and the misinformation and so on. And of course, people doing that are, by definition, you know, anonymous. They, they're, they're not using their real names. They're not having the one face that Facebook wants them to have. And there's an incentive there for the social media platforms to try and shut down all of that. Um, much of it will be bad and spreading misinformation. Some of it will be, you know you know, legitimate reasons why people might want to remain anonymous. But I guess all of the news stories that Facebook and Twitter and so on have had to endure about their platforms spreading misinformation and undermining democracy, it's, it's obviously that's that's got to be bad for business at some point. So, so that sort of, to me, I think further reinforces the idea that they need to be really strictly... Um, on this idea that it's you know you have one account you have one face you have one identity well this this does seem to be a, a large part of the problem now now let me for, just say right out there that uh that uh, i i'm somewhat sympathetic to these arguments that um that these platform operators need to uh uh, uh, need to recognize uh, uh, their their impact on democracy and need to perhaps uh, 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 police uh, the uh, the content of what uh, of what transpires on their networks, but I don't see this as a uh, as an obligation that these firms should have so much as a symptom of a problem, a deeper problem that Facebook is in this position to uh, to broker relationships, to facilitate uh, uh, influence within within the network. The the fact that uh, that they are facilitating influence of any kind, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, is the problem. It's not the. Uh, it's not just the problem that. It's not just the fact that they happen to be uh, facilitating toxic narratives that that promote echo chambers and so on. I I think the problem really is that that Facebook has a role of broker uh, in establishing people's connections, and 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 that's really where I where where I would like to point the finger uh, to the problem. I, I, I think that once we get into the road, once we start going down the road of saying that Facebook needs to block, say, Donald Trump, for example, I mean, certainly I'm no fan of Donald Trump, um, but I, I would like to say that it's a bit disturbing to me that, that Donald Trump or anyone uh, would be uh, silenced uh, by a social media network operator. Uh, and, I, and I say this not because... I uh, want to see those ideas being promoted widely throughout the world, but rather that it is disturbing that Facebook is in a position to uh, to decide 
uh, what gets brokered and what doesn't get brokered. And that is extremely scary and extremely dangerous. Uh, and rather than suggest uh, as a solution that um, uh, uh, social media platforms like Facebook or Twitter should silence some, uh, some, some, some dangerous actors, I think that, that we have to understand, take a step back, understand what the real problem is, which is that Facebook is introducing people to voices, uh, voices that aren't in their networks already, and that people go to uh, Twitter and Facebook to be a part of what they think of as being the public square. But it's not a public square. It's a private uh, system that has private actors uh, that are controlling the uh, the infrastructure in a very fundamental and, and perhaps dangerous way. Uh, I would like to suggest that we don't really know how to create a, a public square of the kind of size and scope uh, of, uh, of a Facebook or a Twitter uh, that is truly public the way that real public squares are. Uh, and I think that the these analogies uh, really don't do justice to the phenomenon of what is going on uh, at, a, at, a, uh, at, a, at a at a direct sort of personal and technical level in terms of these introductions to voices and and that I would suggest is the core problem now you said something else that that is uh, uh, is interesting which is about anonymity and you're, you're, su you're suggesting that some of these actors on these platforms are anonymous and, and all that I have to say is that anonymity is not the same as not signing your name uh, an identity uh, is really a set of attributes, uh, and attributes might be transactions, they might be characteristics, uh, they might be uh, they might be identifiers of various sorts. Um, but they're a set of attributes that relates to ultimately a relationship between uh, between entities. Now, the ISO standard on this says that an identity is a uh, is a set of attributes about an entity. I, I think that that's perhaps a bit perhaps a bit wrong. I would suggest that it's a it is uh, a, uh, a set of attributes about a relationship uh, because nobody gets the same view of a particular identity and no one gets the same view of a particular entity. And, and in fact, it's not uh, the characteristics that we build are really about that relationship more than, uh, than about our ability to establish ground truth about an entity. I mean, at the risk of, uh, of sounding a bit Cartesian, I, I, I worry about this idea that we want to create universal truth about entities. That, that seems dangerous. Um, but nonetheless, uh, this idea of anonymity is about these attributes. And, I, and ultimately, if you're linking these attributes to each other, you're building a profile about someone, whether or not that someone has a name or is linked to anything that's strongly identifying them, like biometrics or a phone number, for example. Um, and the idea that people are uh, communicating online via these platforms anonymously, I think, is debatable uh, for the most part. I mean, yes, there are tools that increase uh, our, uh, uh, our privacy, such as Tor, for example. Um, and there are protocols that provide for uh, anonymous or much more anonymous communication up to a li up to a limit, like Mixmaster, for example, uh, for email. Uh, but ultimately, these these tools are are only uh, uh, partial solutions to this problem of of unlinking uh, our uh, uh, our attributes from each other. And and I think that if we if we really look under the covers, most of the people who communicate in these forums are not truly anonymous, uh, and are and in many cases are not even close to anonymous. They they may not fully understand the exact reason, technical reasons, as you probably do, why they why they're not anonymous. It depends who they are, of course. But um, I'm sure many of them 
feel that they're fully anonymous whether they really are or not i think it's um interesting you kind of talking about this idea of like having a single like source of truth in terms of your identity because i know that there's a push right now from like a lot of the world's governments towards creating sort of a single digital identity for their citizens that can be used for like a variety of different government like resources for like accessing housing as an example um and like some of this is about using like biometric attributes such as fingerprints but um like so what are your views on that that concept yeah. from a state approach and how it could be good straight bad i think it's very dangerous i mean let, let me just be really clear uh i think this this idea of establishing one sort of uh unitary identifier and by unitary identifier i mean something that someone has only one of uh one identity one face if a government wants to create one face that people present to uh, many different uh, uh, many different contexts then then that becomes a problem because people will ultimately feel a need a legitimate need to escape from the profile that's been built on the back of uh, of of their uh, 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 of what had been pinned to that one face and and yes there are different efforts that have been that have been built to uh, with exactly as you say, exactly that objective in mind. I mean, cer certainly in Estonia, there is a there is a uh, an identity system that the state has uh, has implemented that uh, effectively encourages people to use uh, an identity in different contexts, which is precisely about allowing this kind of profiling to happen and uh, and establishing this kind of uh, this kind of linkage. But I really do think that we need to we need to ask some tough questions. Like, what about cases of people who are witnesses to a to a crime, or victims of abuse, or refugees, or or ordinary people who just want a fresh start? Uh, these people, I think, are, are 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 really put in danger by a system that ultimately maintains history of them. And and this is, I think, the the core of what. Uh, the European Union has uh, identified in its characterization of the right to be forgotten inside GDPR. The, the idea here is that really people have a, a certain kind of a right to establish a new identity. And they haven't described it very clearly, perhaps, and, and maybe the, the law itself isn't strong enough to give us what we need. But I think this recognition of of this 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 value in being able to unlink the different uh, 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 the different aspects of our history are, is is really essential and 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 I'll give you a, a perhaps a case in point medical histories. One might imagine that you know people might be okay with having one universal medical history run by their uh, uh, by their uh, their their uh, 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 their medical uh, organization at the state level like NHS or or even something that's universal to their their uh, their general practitioner. Uh, the the problem is that if people can only have one general practitioner or can only have one uh, uh, health services provider, then then what happens when they want to seek consultation for something that they don't want to have on their permanent record? And and let's be clear, there are lots of medical uh, 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 circumstances or information that can be derived from medical records that might be very sensitive uh, to someone. You can figure out, um, for example, uh, someone's drug use pattern. Uh, you can find out their uh, pre-existing conditions. I mean, wouldn't it be really interesting if an employer could get access to uh, drug use patterns and say, hmm, I think that you were formerly a cocaine addict, so I'm not going to hire you. Or perhaps 
I think that you have diabetes, so maybe I don't want to be paying your medical bills, or, uh, or, or and so on. And and I think that this this only scratches the surface. I mean, if if someone's medical history indicates that they uh, uh, might be say LBG, LGBT, for instance, they might find themselves in uh, in trouble in certain parts of the world uh, that might not necessarily uh, uh, look kindly on that, and, and that's a real problem. Uh, so I think that this idea of having of forcing people to bind all of their records together into one uh, into one unified view, whether it's a whether this is about internet browsing or or financial history or medical records or anything else, uh, I think is really is really problematic. And I think we need to pause on those efforts to try to build assurance and strong non-transferability for everything, because in some cases more uh, assurance is not better and is actually worse, uh, not only for the system, uh, but also for the individuals who use it. I think it's, um, I thought it really interesting that you brought up Estonia, actually, because it's going to say that um, I think when this sort of the concept of state surveillance or like controls of identity from the state level is mentioned, people often think about sort of dictatorship type countries or places where like human rights aren't followed. Um, whereas Estonia is interestingly often held up as an example of a really good digital state and a state that's doing like really good things. Um, but then actually, I guess like listening to you talk then, it's kind of like the, the underlying technology and the underlying concepts are the same. It's the, how it's enacted might be slightly different, but then I guess it's, it's still vulnerable to the same, um, things. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I think that there are there are questions about trust and I think there are some kinds of arguments uh around this as well, such as the idea that oh, well, here in Estonia, people just trust each other more. They're more open and that makes them better. Um I think that these are dangerous arguments or 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 conversely um uh, the, the government has better data protection and would never succumb to the kinds of uh, uh, the kinds of uh, horrible uh, uh, history that that uh, uh, that the rest of Europe has seen in its in its uh, in its past. Uh, you know, I think that that there is hubris in these arguments, and uh, and and I think that we need to think really carefully about what the implications of these of these. Uh, 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 of these kinds of statements are, and we see them, you know, I, I think uh, in, in every uh, in, in every government and every culture that that wants to implement these systems, as well as corporations in the private sector as well. Um, you know, we see this in in uh, in Europe, we see this in the U.S., we see this in Asia. Uh, this is not, uh, you know, th- this this should not be surprising. Okay, so so you're definitely more on the side of um, this kind of tool is just so open to abuse that it's um, that there's you know, it's not worth pursuing. I guess if I was going to play devil's advocate, um, and this is a different, difficult one for me to do because I'm not sure I, I personally believe in what I'm about to say, but um, so when there are other countries um, thinking about adopting, say, a national identity system, um, especially countries that already don't, don't already have established um, ways of identifying yourself, like in the, in the UK hopefully you know the the principle of of having different identities between myself and the nhs or myself and hmrc might be at least to some degree respected because of the historical you know legacy reasons that we just happen to have set it up that way rather than having a single id document or whatever but if you take a country like india which has adopted this national id system in the last few years 
um, on the basis of most people didn't have any identity, provable identity uh, documents before, and they want to be able to like, you know, streamline the provision of welfare and healthcare and, and whatever else uh, the government provides in terms of services, that their argument there would be that, look how much good it's doing. Um, and, you know, you Westerners with your, I mean, they probably wouldn't say it like so condescendingly as I'm about to, but you Westerners with your ideas of, you know, <laughs> um, trying to preserve everyone's freedom and so on. But we're more important, more importantly, we just want economic development. That's the main, the main thing that makes people's lives better. Um, right. What, what would your response be to that? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I guess I guess there are, there are several responses. I, I mean, for, first, the, qu the question is economic development at what cost? I mean, there, there is uh, very little question that uh, it's possible for a society to achieve uh, quite rapid economic development uh, just by establishing a, uh, a very powerful autocracy uh, and then commanding people to do as uh, as they say. Uh, and if this is what we want, then then if that if that's the only measurement, if that's the only problem that we're trying to solve, then then I can't really argue with it. Um, uh, but I think that uh, I, I think that we're looking to solve a deeper problem, perhaps. Uh, and uh, and and you mentioned this idea of uh, of people not having any identity at all, and perhaps things being set up uh, a certain way in many of the Western countries, uh, like, for example, in the UK, where uh, our taxpayer ID is different from our national insurance number, which is, um, which is, uh, is, is different from the other numbers that we use uh, in, uh, in our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, and I think that really, there are two aspects to this. The first is that uh, that there, there's a reason why our taxpayer ID is for taxes, right? And and why this is okay. It's it's because I use my taxpayer ID for the purpose of paying taxes, uh, for getting tax refunds, uh, for reporting my uh, my compliance with tax laws, and nothing else. Uh, and uh, and I use my uh, NHS number uh, for uh, communicating with my uh, my GP. Uh, and uh, uh, and for registering for health-related uh, uh, business and nothing else, uh, and and it's the separation that allows us to have uh, have some uh, freedom from being profiled by having everything be uh, connected into one sort of unified ID. It is precisely the linkage that causes the problem. It is precisely when we can start to paint a, a, a single unified picture of a person uh, that we can start to abuse them via surveillance. Uh, and, uh, and, and I think that that's what we should be concerned about. Now, I recognize that, that there has been an argument that sometimes people have no identity but I, uh, and, and need to have some kind of a system established for facilitating that. But I, I, I have to push back on this. Uh, because I know that this is uh, the UN Sustainable Development Goal 16.9, uh, which is this idea of, uh, of uh, identities for everyone. I have to push back on this a bit, uh, because what problem are we trying to solve? That's the question that we need to ask. Uh, and if the problem is that, uh, that people don't have access to some particular service, then then let's let's talk about that particular service and let's think about how at the system level we can make sure that they have they have access to this and there are many more ways to do this than to provide a uh, a a globally unique identifier for every person and i think that if we look at in some contexts in the financial context for example since that's the the core of my work uh 
uh, I, I can tell you that some consulting firms around the world have pushed this idea of financial inclusion being equated with the ability to get loans or the ability to open bank accounts or the ability to uh, uh, have uh, affordable insurance uh, and, and so on. And, and I think that we need to ask ultimately whether these particular kinds of, uh, of, of services are really human rights. And I think in many cases the answer is no. Uh, I think it's debatable whether uh, giving people uh, access to, uh, to, to cheaper loans is actually going to make their lives better. Uh, and, uh, and certainly I can see an argument of, of, that suggests that there is a certain colonialism uh, intrinsic to the idea that uh, before you lend to someone, you need to make sure that, that they behave properly. Uh, this idea that someone, some wealthy uh, uh, corporation or, 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 or lender might say, you know, I'd really love to lend to these savages, but, you know, really, I c I'll only do that if they uh, submit to, uh, to being watched by me. This seems like a really dangerous sort of road to, uh, to, uh, to travel. Interesting, interesting. Very sort of profound point you've made there. Um, I, I, it, what you were saying at the start of that uh, leads me quite nicely into the next question um talking about what is well what should be considered a human right and what isn't um so you mentioned already about how traditionally a person's identity is thought of a set of attributes that defines them or that identifies them um but in your work you've spoken about how it could be better from a considering privacy as a human right perspective to see id as a set of attributes related to a relationship between people or between people and the providers of a service be that a commercial or government service um, and then this comes back to what we were talking about you know people having different multiple identities um, so can you talk a bit about why the ability for people to have multiple identity multiple identities that that cannot be linked um, and that's the crucial part why that perhaps ought to be considered a human right uh, perhaps as opposed to human rights to give someone a loan. People are always re reinventing themselves, right? Pe people face, it's part of the human condition to face this, this question of who we ought to be, what, what we want our impact on the world to be, right? I, I, the, what, what we wind up experiencing in life, uh, I, I think, is, has been described by various people over the years, including Machiavelli, I think, uh, had said it's, it's half... It's half fate and half our efforts, uh, you know, and we can't really uh, we can't really tease them apart entirely, right? But I think ultimately people have some influence, maybe not perfect influence, but they have some influence over what they uh, of how they change the world and what they experience in life. And I think the problem with having only one identity is that you're forcing someone into into one particular uh, uh, history that they cannot escape, and it's 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 the human condition to establish different identities as we as we evolve, as we decide to change who we are, as we decide to try out different uh, different styles of interacting with the world, different ways of being. 
And to take this away is to take away something very fundamental that makes us human. Uh, and, and I wish I could describe it more, uh, more succinctly than that, or, or perhaps more, uh, more uh, uh, in, in a more scientifically grounded way. Um, but suffice it to say that uh, science fiction authors in much of the 20th century uh, had uh, pictured this future world in which computers would become more like humans. Whereas I think we've seen... Uh, you know, at the end, after the end of the 20th century, that in reality, it is, it is humans who have become more like computers. Uh, it is humans who are programmed. It is humans who, uh, who can be controlled via, uh, via the collection of data and so on. And, and I, and I worry very much about this. And I think that this idea of multiple unlinkable identities as a way to describe our natural state of being as human beings in establishing uh, in establishing relationships on our own terms is is really uh, something that uh, it would be perhaps dangerous to lose uh, and uh, imagine a world in which uh, in which everyone could see our histories before they decide uh, whether to talk to us well that's the world that we're building uh, and I'm not sure that that's where we want to be yeah, I I think unfortunately, you, although I I'm, I'm loath to uh, blame the public and individual people as well as the you know providers of of the technology and people making decisions, there there's a certain amount of um, oh you know if you if you tweet something a few years ago and then it gets pulled up and it's like well should you have tweeted it in the first place? But then maybe I'm wrong to think that. Maybe it's like well. I, I, you know, I shouldn't be, um, you know, concerned about what people thought about what I thought when I was 16 or something, you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult, a difficult conundrum, but. Yeah. Well, I think it's natural to be concerned, right? Uh, because this is part of the world to, to ignore, uh, how people are reacting to us, I think would be to ignore part of, uh, part of the, uh, the environment to ignore part of what makes us human as well. Uh, so I think it's very natural to regret, uh, decisions that we've made. Uh, for example, that message that you might've posted to Twitter at some point in the fa in the past, maybe 10 years ago, uh, that, uh, you know, I, I can understand how people can regret it. I can understand how, how it might be comforting to think, well, it, it doesn't really matter what people think they ought to forgive me. But the reality is that some people will never forgive you. And I think this says a lot about uh, about the problems with establishing a kind of permanent record. If you're uh, if you're making if you're making a statement uh, in a platform uh, environment where it's only a few of your friends and no central broker, uh, then you can ask these friends to forgive you. Uh, whereas I think once we've gotten something into into one of these sort of faceless uh, 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 global platforms that have records that last forever and never get deleted. Uh, I think we've uh, I think we've created a big problem for this notion of forgiveness. And again, this goes back to the GDPR question: what What is the right to be forgotten, and how well can it be enforced in reality? Right. The the mechanisms inside GDPR for enforcing the right to be forgotten do not guarantee that this history of yours is gone from the world. Uh, someone could very easily. Uh, capture information about you and post it anonymously to WikiLeaks in a way that it exists forever. Uh, and, uh, and, and European regulators will never track down who has it. Uh, and that's a real problem. 
I, I think that uh, I think that we do need to be scrupulous uh, with our decisions to uh, post uh, uh, statements in uh, uh, on these kinds of platforms. To be sure, uh, although I think there is a a problem with what we have built uh, as a society in terms of its infrastructure that makes that mechanism for speaking a, a de facto uh, uh, aspect of our societal expectation for what people want, for what people do, how people interact. I, I think that there's a real problem with that, and I, and I think that we can't really escape it very easily. I think we'll, we'll need to convince people that, that actually there, this idea of having a, a, a global public Twitter is, is problematic. Like how do we how do we get people to uh, how do we get people to think more carefully about that? Uh, I, I think that this is a question about our social infrastructure first and foremost, because some people really will uh, always make statements to the in this kind of global context. They they will be audacious and sometimes they'll regret it. Um, I I don't think that 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 the right solution is to stop people from doing that. I I think the right solution is to is to think about the infrastructures that we've built think about whether we want Twitter to be a public medium of exchange that is used by our, uh, our governments and, uh, and our institutions. And if the answer is yes, I think we've got a problem. I think that leads uh, uh, really nicely onto your own research. And I was wondering like, if as much in layman's terms as possible for those of us who aren't super technical, uh, sort of what are the problems that you think that your own research into digital identity hope to solve? And what is your research into that? Um, and how can, uh, how can technology like blockchain help to realize the idea of multiple IDs that can't be linked? Yeah. So I think that there are a number of different aspects to this question. Um, so the first, the first thing that I'd like to point to is, uh, is that most of my, uh, much of my work these days is divided into a few different areas. One of which is, uh, is digital currency. Uh, and, uh, and and I and I want to point out uh, f first of all that that uh, uh, digital payment systems are a major uh, form of surveillance today, uh, and uh, and this is not a new observation. Uh, this has been known for uh, over half a century uh, since around the uh, the early days of credit credit cards. And and as we know, credit cards were really started because people didn't have uh, access to clearing networks uh, in an online sense all the time. If you remember those machines that went ka-chunk, ka-chunk, that would take the embossed cards and would print them on a, uh, on a, on a sheet of carbon paper, um, uh, leaving an imprint. I have to say, I have to say I'm, I'm probably not old enough to remember ah, that. I sorry. <laughs> I, 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 I'm an old curmudgeon. Uh, I, I, you, you've outed me. Um, the, but, but basically... Yeah, but basically the uh, the reason that we have credit cards is that uh, we basically needed to provide credit to uh, consumers who didn't necessarily want to carry around large wads of cash and uh, didn't necessarily want to uh, 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 make all of these payments with uh, in in cash at the point of sale. Uh, and we, we, we needed to give them credit for a very short period of time, like maybe three days, um, because we didn't have uh, finality with the settlement because we didn't have the, the ability for, uh, for the merchant to call up their bank or a network that, that led to their bank account and, get, and, and, and potentially get an immediate, uh, uh, an immediate uh, debit. Uh, and this is a, a real issue. Uh, this is a real concern. And, and we see there are echoes of this still, right? Uh, um, 
uh, so even with debit cards, we don't get immediate finality, right? We 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 still might have uh, uh, we we still have settlement that might take a day. Uh, we uh, even with credit cards uh, in the modern uh, context, we still see the possibility of clawbacks uh, that uh, that face merchants when uh, when a client calls up their bank and says, "Hey, wait a minute! This uh, you know someone stole my card. That flat screen television uh, that that was just purchased was not purchased by me." Uh, and then the bank says, "Okay, we trust you." Uh, you know, th these kinds of these are actually forms of credit uh, that are being extended, uh, and and perhaps a bit of paternalism along with that. Um, in terms of uh, providing someone with uh, with good faith uh, service in exchange for being able to know something about their their habits, um, now go back to 1957 and Paul Armour of the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, California, had said, "Well, uh, I'm concerned about this. I'm concerned about uh, about people using these electronic the the these card payments." Uh, and the future of possible electronic payments uh, to monitor my my habits, my locations, um, my my travel, uh, my associations, and so on. Uh, every, every time I buy so much as a newspaper or a candy bar, I think w w was was what he had said. And and this is actually a uh, a real concern. And granted, that system that Paul Armour was concerned about in nineteen uh, in nineteen sixty seven uh, did not really come into reality until decades later, but now it's here and it's very much here. Uh, and, uh, and now we have this kind of concern where people are basically being forced uh, by merchants and shops and restaurants uh, to show ID, uh, to identify themselves to a platform before they can make purchases. Uh, there, are, there are many uh, uh, businesses here in London that refuse cash payments and and that's really problematic. In addition to discriminating and choosing their clientele, which is a problem in itself, uh, this idea that, uh, that they're forcing their customers to identify themselves is a real problem. So is it that just by using a, a card, you're by definition identifying yourself? You're absolutely identifying yourself. That's what a card is. It's an ID card. I mean, a, a bank card is a kind of ID card. It's tied to an account which is tied to you. It's just it's just a mechanism for identifying you. It's not, by the way, like a non-custodial um, cryptocurrency wallet or digital currency wallet, which might hold tokens anonymously and might uh, be able to send tokens anonymously. That would be something different, but that's not what bank cards are. I think in many people's minds' eyes, back, bank cards are basically just that, right? Bank cards are basically a mechanism for, for giving you cash. It's just electronic. Well, that's just not true. It's a mechanism for identifying yourself and then asking your bank to send money to the bank of your merchant. And all at all steps, the banks and the payment systems in the in the interim can intermediate your transaction. Uh, they can build a profile on who you are, or who your merchants are, and who your counterparties are, uh, and uh, and ultimately can uh, can create this risk of uh, of control uh, that's associated with this idea that they can nudge you toward behaving in certain ways on the basis of the profile that they build about you. Uh, so this is not the same as holding money. Like you might ask, well, why, why, uh, would someone, why would someone use electronic payments at all? If with cash, they can choose, they can choose their currency. They can, uh, they don't. They they don't have the risk of being profiled. They don't have the risk of being intermediated or blocked. They know that their money is as good as everyone else's because it it it, it reveals nothing else about them. Versus electronic trans transactions, which are exactly the opposite of all of those things. Why would they do that? Uh, and I think that 
this this story of convenience has been uh, fed into the narrative in a way that discourages people from thinking critically about what's going on. And the reality is that you're giving your information to not only your bank, but also your payment network and uh, and other parties who track all of the counterparties that you have, all of the counterparties that your counterparties have, and so on. You might be much more concerned about someone robbing your wallet full of cash on the street than you are about the bank, you know, collecting your data. Um, and so having a card which you can then, if it's stolen, easily cancel it and uh, that kind of thing. That seems like that's the trade-off that's been made. That um, And maybe it's not an, an ideal trade-off, but it it does, yeah. It's a trade-off. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there there are a number of uh, 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 there, there are a number of, of possible responses to that. I mean, the, the the first of which is just that there is there is some element of paternalism in this trade-off. And is it really right for us to be making this choice on behalf of all people? Right. That's 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 my first response. But I think there's a second response as well, which is can we facilitate uh, uh, secure electronic transactions uh, that uh that that take place in a way that uh allows people to have this kind of security of being able to communicate with their own servers perhaps or uh or or uh, or if they're able to uh, uh take that uh, have a, have an inf- have some uh, a key that they can use to uh to cancel the money that was in that digital wallet that was just stolen for example and and there are techniques to do this and and I can just point to uh, David Chalm's paper in 1982 blind signatures for untraceable payments where he describes some of these mechanisms so it is possible to build a digital a digital transaction infrastructure that provides both privacy and the ability to achieve the kinds of protections that you're describing um, but but we haven't built it yet and there hasn't really been a lot of discussion about it and, and I think part of the reason is that uh, data that we, we've come to rely upon data revenues to subsidize the infrastructure that we build and this is a real concern and it's a real concern in the UK in the question of open banking which by the way was always intended to or, or pitched as a way to disintermediate transactions but in reality we see that that since open banking was introduced, it is not the the direct debits that have uh, uh, that have uh, uh, taken the place of uh, of card payments, but it's card payments that have taken the place of uh, of cash payments. Uh, and I would argue that that means that open banking has failed, or at least it's failed on something that it's been pitched as uh, as, uh, as 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 that it should uh, as that it should have achieved. Uh, and and this is a real concern because when we talk about open banking and faster settlements and all these sorts of things, benefiting whom? Uh, it does not really matter for an average uh, person on the street buying a cup of coffee uh, that the settlement for the, for, the, uh, for the purchase takes place in a day or a week. Um, what, but if we do want to encourage faster settlement for everyone, then that comes at, at, a, at a cost, right? It, it comes at a cost of the uh, 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 of the revenues to the uh, participants in the uh, in the clearing network, first of all, uh, and but also in terms of the liquidity risk that they uh, that they have to face. Uh, and I think that this is a uh, I think that we need to think very critically about what the plan is for subsidizing these kinds of changes and who these kinds of changes benefit. And if these changes are to be subsidized by data revenues, I think we're in trouble. Is it is it fair to say that? people who sort of agree with your line of thinking would be pro-Bitcoin, pro-cryptocurrency? And is that an avenue that could 
solve some of these problems or are there just inherent flaws with that as well? Well, unfortunately, there are inherent flaws with that. Um, I mean, to be, to be clear, I, I, I'm no huge fan of Bitcoin uh, or, or, or even cryptocurrency in general. But I, I have to say that if we look to the history of cryptocurrency, we, we wind up going all the way back, not to, not to the Satoshi Nakamoto paper in 2009, which introduced Bitcoin. No, we have to go back much further. And I mentioned David Chalm's paper, but David Chalm's objective was to build a countless digital cash. That's what people wanted. People wanted to be able to spend money electronically over the internet. That's that's something that people have wanted for a very long time, 40 years at least. Um, but the problem is that uh, that that's just not the reality. But was he was he saying specifically that people wanted untraceable digital cash? I think that people did want digital cash. And digital cash implies a certain degree of untraceability, right? Because that's what cash is. And and that's something that we've had. Uh, ever since we've had money, we've had the ability to transact with something that's truly fungible, that's not linked to our identity in any way, and in a way that doesn't result in us uh, us uh, sharing uh, our counterparty information in, in, in such a, a way of a manner of spraying our data everywhere we go. Um, and unfortunately, with modern retail banking, we've, we've stepped away from that. Now, I, I do believe that there is a, an element of, uh, of uh, uh, cryptocurrency uh, being popular precisely because it uh, it allows people to transact away from the gaze of the corporate and state surveillance um, uh, uh, machine. Although uh, I think as we've discovered with Bitcoin and Ethereum and so on, that that's no, that is not exactly true. Um, these, uh, these online payments using these mechanisms can actually be traced very well. And even in the case of privacy enhancing cryptocurrencies like uh, Zcash or Monero, uh, the anonymity sets are so small that uh, you're really not uh, getting the kind of, uh, of privacy that, that, the, uh, that the underlying cryptographic algorithms might, uh, might otherwise imply, right? The, the privacy that you get is more theoretical than real. Uh, and uh, yes, we can use those algorithms to good effect, but I think if we uh, if we really want to do that, we need to make these institutionally accepted. And and I think that making an institutional infrastructure, uh, building an institutional infrastructure that allows people to have a public payment option that does not uh, disclose their identities and associate it with all of their, their habits and locations and, and uh, counterparties, uh, I think is, is going to be needed in order to make that, uh, make that a reality. And uh, and that's why I've been spending uh, so much of my time working on uh, on digital currency and uh, and central bank digital currency in particular. Uh, something I find really interesting about the concept of a cashless society specifically um, is I think it's a bad idea, but not from um, a sort of surveillance point of view, but from the kind of concept of like accessibility to society. So, for example, like homeless people. Um, mm -hmm can get access to cash but can't get access to bank accounts because they don't have a fixed address they don't have any of those other forms of identification but then on the flip side um lots of proponents of say cryptocurrency talk about it replacing standard uh, national currencies but has a similar accessibility issue of you have to be tech savvy you have to be able to access the internet you have to have all these skills and like things in place that cost money to get um, like an internet connection, not everyone in the world has an internet connection. Um, so I think it's just an interesting like counterpoint that I've never really thought, whenever I've thought about cashless society, I've come at it from like that kind of accessibility perspective, which I think applies to both equally. But the identity side is an interesting counterpoint, I think. Mm -hmm.
yeah. So, so yes, I, I think that part of this is is related to this identity question. Like, are are we really going to insist that electronic payments require people to be identified? Well, that's dangerous in itself. Uh, although I, I have to add that some countries, such as France, have taken the approach that um, we can solve this problem just by making sure that everyone has the right to a bank account. Uh, so in France, everyone can get a bank account, uh, and it's different than it is here in the UK or in, in many other countries. Um, but uh, I, I don't think that that's the whole story either. I, I, I think that you mentioned accessibility, but it, it goes beyond that, right? It, yes, there is the idea that, that banknotes uh, are, uh, are tangible uh, objects and, uh, and people get to uh, do their own budgeting better. And yes, there are certain things that they can do. They can, I, can, I can share a 20 pound note with, uh, with someone else in my family without the worry that I have to involve, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, all of the, uh, the, uh, the apparatus of financial regulators and, surveillance and, uh, and intelligence agencies and, and so on in that process. That's really, you know, I think that that's really important, and and certainly people have argued um, as uh, as research that uh, some of my colleagues uh, and I have carried out uh, in part of the Sprite Plus project on uh, on what we take uh, on future payment systems and what what we lose when we take away cash. Um, We've, we've, we've discovered this kind of argument that people do lose the ability to do family budgeting and they do lose the ability to uh, to, uh, 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 to to share money with, uh, with with others in their family or to, to keep track of their own purchases by by virtue of keeping track of the amount of cash that they have in their physical pocket. I think that all of these things are true. Uh, However, I, I think that really what it comes down to, from my perspective, is something that's perhaps a bit deeper than just the privacy question, but the, the question of possession, right? This idea that, that if I have a 20-pound note, I have something in my possession. It's not just something that I have a legal claim on, like a bank deposit. It's actually something that I possess. And... And, and from a legal perspective, and, Nor and uh, Norton Rose Fulbright had an interesting article on, on this question. From a legal perspec perspective, there's a difference between um, uh, uh, assets to which I have some kind of legal claim and assets that I actually possess. And this goes, goes back pretty far in the, in, the, in the history of common law, uh, this idea of a, a chose in, uh, in uh, possession versus a chose in action. This idea that a, a, uh, something that I actually possess is, uh, is not something that uh, a court can just decide is suddenly somewhere else. Uh, you, you, can, you can create an obligation for me to give you uh, 20 pounds, but you, you, you can't uh, actually physically take the 20 pound note for me and put it in your pocket without, you know, w without actually sending the police and, and, and having them rough me up a bit. Uh, that's a very different kind of question. And, and this is a, uh, and, and I think that uh, these questions about possession apply very, very clearly to, uh, uh, to this question about the future of cash, precisely because, uh, pr precisely because uh, we're, by encouraging people to use the modern retail banking system, we're encouraging people to move away from transacting using things they possess and move into the world of transacting uh, with uh, legal claims that might be intercepted or profiled and, 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 and so on, which are much weaker and, and really aren't, uh, and really arguably are not, uh, are not actually, uh, are, are not actually things that they actually hold in the same kind of way uh, that they might hold cash. Uh, and just ask someone whose bank had defaulted. I mean, yes, there, there might be deposit insurance um, uh, in, in much of the Western world, for example, for, for depositors with banks that default. Uh, 
But let's bear in mind that deposit insurance must exist precisely because these people don't possess that money that they put with the bank. This is this is really, really interesting. So I, I'm just wondering as well, because maybe there's a third option, which is that, okay, so there are things you're legally entitled to, there are things that you have in your possession, but then with the, like a cryptocurrency, for instance, which you have in your, quote, digital wallet, I mean, it's sort of like you're technologically uh, linked to it somehow. Isn't you're not like it's not like you're legally entitled it to it per se. So maybe that's different. I'm not sure. Yeah. So I, I think the Norton Rose Fulbright article is has has an interesting perspective on this. And and you know and I and I'm not a lawyer, so I'm I'm not going to uh, going to uh, opine on uh, on what uh, on what this perspective ought to be. But um, but let me let me say that uh, there is this idea of fungibility that relates to this this notion that I know that my money is as good as everybody else's because it's indistinguishable from everybody else's. And I know that I can transact this money without any custodian of mine blocking it because I can take this thing that's in my non-custodial wallet and I can transact it with someone else someone else's bank instead. Um, that's a very powerful concept because you can imagine that the issuer of a digital currency like this could revoke the whole system much as a uh, a central bank could decide to completely devalue the currency, but it has very strong and public uh, um, incentives not to do that. First of all, and secondly, it can't uh, you know, and 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 second, it can't actually um, it it can't actually uh, single me out as uh, as someone to block in this manner the way that a uh, a a a financial custodian could. So I think that there is something about the custody that that plays a role here. And yes, there are still questions about whether um, whether we need we have assets that are fundamentally intrinsically linked to a particular system versus not. You know whether uh, whether that system is uh, is a particular uh, distributed ledger system or uh, or even a, a particular system in which banknotes are accepted. Uh, you know I, I think these are important questions to ask about the design uh, of a currency. But let's just say that. There is a fundamental difference between money that someone can freeze of mine, or money that someone can always see what I do with it, versus uh, versus money that I can spend on my own terms without having to to reference myself or uh, or any particular custodian. And that I think is a, is an important aspect of of uh, possession. Well, on on that note, and thinking about the what you mentioned there, the distributed ledger tech or the blockchain tech. What might a solution to this actually look like? And I'm thinking both in terms of, yeah, the the money, the cash or the currency uh, topic we've just been discussing, but also perhaps more broadly for other avenues of um, interaction that might be currently mediated by an identity card or document. Yeah. So I think if we, if we zoom out from beyond the money, I think that um, I think that what's really interesting is uh, is if you look at the existing kinds of systems that establish truth, right? So think record systems, for example. Uh, many times record systems reference the will of the creators of the records. And they rely upon some strong identification of the people who create records. Uh, and and this idea that uh, that any disputes would be adjudicated in a court of law that becomes the... Uh, the uh, the 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 unifying truth, 
uh, and and th and that's it. That's all there is to it. We identify the actors. You know, we can drill into uh, into what the actors had intended, and we can decide what what records are valid versus not. What's interesting about distributed ledger technology is that there is an absolutely different, perhaps diametrically opposed mechanism for establishing the authenticity of records, which is this idea that if we get a, a bunch of people at arm's length uh, to agree on something, uh, and we assume that they are sufficiently independent of each other, that, that one of them can't uh, coerce the other into acting in a particular way, then that agreement becomes uh, leads to a kind of immutability uh, of, the, of the ledger, of the record, uh, that gives rise to uh, this trust that we can have in that, in that uh, uh, record not, not changing in the future. Uh, because in order to change it, you would need to uh, convince everyone to uh, uh, to roll back and uh, uh, and, uh, and and re-sign all of the history, and it, convincing everyone is basically impossible. Uh, so therefore, we believe that these uh, these records are final. I, I think that this is a very interesting concept. Nobody can hack Bitcoin to give themselves more money. Yeah, well, that's well, that's an interesting question, right? This idea of hacking uh, uh, participants in the system, right? Does that undermine the immutability of the system if we if we actually can uh, compromise all of the the technology that these different actors use to uh, to interface with the system? I think that that's uh, I think that this is a, a security risk uh, with uh, with Bitcoin, just as it is with uh, with other kinds of records, uh, and uh, and needs to be taken as seriously. Uh, I also think that uh, that systems like Bitcoin are, are are seldom as decentralized as we assume they are. Uh, we saw just uh, just last week with this uh, this uh, this Berlin fork in Ethereum. I th I think which is part of this question: uh, who is really in control, and who might disagree with that control? These are really key questions, and I think that this underscores why we need institutions why there really is no substitute for institutions whether whether it's a, a whether it's a band of thugs or a mining pool uh you know i i don't know who's in control of bitcoin and ethereum because that's the nature of of permissionless ledgers what i do know is what i do know is that um that someone with the with the uh, the resources can buy control now maybe you need a lot of money to do this or you need to uh, arrange a big cabal but it's certainly possible uh, to buy control of these systems, and I think that that should uh, that should give us pause about whether these systems uh, of permissionless distributed ledgers are appropriate for uh, for institutional uh, or uh, or governmental uh, uh, trust. Yeah, I, I guess the the argument is it would be really really hard, uh, not just from a technological perspective, but the number of sheer number of people to like to like by to you know to to essentially have control over the bitcoin network but then you know there are really large entities in the world for example governments for example you know authoritarian governments you can imagine china for instance decides one day okay it's our secret policy that we're going to try and control bitcoin now maybe that would be really hard and prove impossible but you know it's it's not it's not like crazy to think that that's something an idea they could have you know yeah, and and uh, and let's bear in mind that uh, China doesn't also doesn't have to act alone, right? Uh, I'm sure I'm sure that China has allies, uh, as does as do other large governments, uh, and they can decide uh, 
you know, whether they want to take over the system. And it's not just governments either. I mean, there are there are private non-government actors uh, who have this kind of uh, who have this kind of wealth or who could potentially amass this kind of wealth as well. But if there's a, if your your alternative is that an in- institution controls the ledger anyway, like how how would that be better? So I think that there's a question between control in the form of oversight and control in the form of operation. So if we have a government institution institution overseeing the operation of a ledger uh, and regulating the participants, but that the participants still make their own independent decisions, then I think that this is something that we could potentially achieve. If these institutions were to be asked to change the rules, uh, then this could be something that would ultimately be up to the institutions to uh, to decide, right? Uh, if if I'm operating the ledger as a government or another powerful institution, like say Facebook or Google, for example, uh, or, or or a large scale bank, um, then I, you know, th- then I can change the rules whenever I like without asking anyone, without telling anyone. I can manipulate the contents of the ledger. I can resign things. I can just I can mess things up. But if I uh, but if I uh, uh, have to ask other people for uh, permission, basically, or to to or, or to to change the rules uh, in 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 a system, then that's a bit different. Because if I have to tell two different parties that they both have to uh, download this new code and start running it, and uh, and P.S. this version is special, and I'm not going to let you audit it first, then either one of those could take that request to the public and blame the other one for leaking it. And that's a very powerful check on, uh, on the ability for a central actor to coerce uh, parties. And uh, as, as networks scale larger, that, uh, uh, that power only increases. So I think, I think that there is a difference between uh, operating a, a system and overseeing it. And, and I think it's related to this trust question. You know, uh, just because I trust a central bank with the uh, uh, to uh, maintain monetary policy and oversee clearing networks, that doesn't mean that I trust a central bank with my transaction history, uh, and that's why uh, you know I would I would argue in in favor of a uh, of a uh, decentralized system for uh, for for having a check on the uh, the transaction history, uh, uh, not to mention uh, the fact that uh, uh, I would not want a single party to be keeping track of uh, of all of the records associated with uh, with an individual either. Um, but it's the same reason that I that just because I trust uh, a a school teacher to teach a child how to read doesn't mean that I trust the school teacher to drive the school bus. Uh, and uh, I, I think that and and I'm not the author of that quote, by the way. Um, but this is this is a uh, uh, you know this is I think a well known uh, uh, argument. We we don't uh, uh, just because we trust someone in one context doesn't mean that we trust them in in another. And 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 we can trust someone to oversee a network without trusting them to operate it because overseeing a network really just means this responsibility to make sure that everyone follows the rules rather than the ability forcibly to just change the rules without, um, without telling the world. And that's, I think a really important distinction. Yeah. So they're almost like, I don't, I was trying to think of an analogy. I, I don't know if there are overseers of internet forums, perhaps where this sort of works, where there's some level of like, democracy amongst the participants but there is an overseer that moderates i don't know if that's a good analogy or not though (laughs) 
Well, well, I mean, let's look at co-regulatory contexts, right? So look at uh, uh, best execution networks in securities trading. So in the case of MIFID in, the, in, uh, in Europe or uh, NMS, the national market system in the US, um, these are systems that, uh, that basically guarantee that uh, orders get routed to the best bid or offer in the, in the network. And that requires everyone to publish and subscribe to a real-time feed of all of the best bids and offers uh, that they have on their order books and every symbol that trades. And that's a collaborative effort, and that that requires quite a bit of technology and and uh, and 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 quite sophisticated technology in order to be fast enough to give the different exchanges uh, an, an edge. But ultimately, it's not. It did not require the governments to build or maintain that technology. It just required the uh, the government regulators to say, "Here's the rule. Implement a system that complies with this rule, and we have these uh, we have these mechanisms for assuring your compliance and checking your compliance and." And as long as you play by the rules, you can stay in business, and that's and 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 that's all that it takes. Uh, I I know that that's not in, entirely trivial. I mean, there there is quite a bit of effort in 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 building those uh, certification checks and and uh, and the uh, and 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 fulfilling the compliance requirements. But ultimately, those systems were deployed by the private sector companies that were part of this this uh, this this co-regulatory uh, organization rather than uh, the regulators themselves. So it's entirely possible uh, for government to uh, create uh, an incentive for private sector actors to build these kinds of distributed systems and, and use them. This has happened before. And, and to be clear, I, I think that there are many instances of how we can use distributed ledgers to, uh, and, and related technologies to facilitate decentralized uh, truth uh, among independent actors. I think that the key to using this in a way that, um, that protects the interests of the, of the uh, uh, participants in the system is making sure that we're never imposing non-consensual trust. Uh, and it's not true that just because we used a distributed ledger or a blockchain system that automatically we have uh, we have consensual trust. That's not true. That that it, it it depends upon how we implement the system. But by creating a mechanism for allowing us to establish truth without relying upon a central broker to uh, to adjudicate truth, I think is a is a, is a is a powerful mechanism, a powerful tool that allows us to build systems that uh, put the interests of the, uh, the, the participants in mind. Okay, well, on that note, I think I'm going to sort of start to wrap up, but maybe, um, maybe I'll just end with a slightly different question that I, than I was originally going to ask, which is um, just like, just, you've talked a lot about like how these things could be done, but I guess um, the question is, will they be done and you know what's the what does the what do the prospects look like for this kind of uh, decentralized technology privacy preserving technology to be adopted by um, be it governments, banks, other private entities in the future? Is this something that people are really getting on board with? That or is there just you know do you see it's things are more moving in the opposite direction? Well, I, I think that. I think that it, that that these kinds of technologies that will allow people to to transact privately will will come to pass. They will be built. The question is who is going to build them. Uh, and uh, and when I say I'm not optimistic, I I'm not. I mean for for the avoidance of doubt, I'm I'm not saying that I'm not optimistic that these systems will be built. I am optimistic that these systems will be built. 
I, when I say I'm not optimistic, I, what I'm saying is I think they might be built by the wrong people. Uh, and, and, and I think that if we build, if we, if we do not uh, uh, build these systems with legitimate authorities uh, taking proactive stances to make sure that the privacy interests and control interests of individual citizens and individual persons are in mind, then people will turn to uh, systems that are operated by uh, operated outside the law, perhaps by uh, perhaps by uh, by thugs or or other criminal enterprises, or perhaps by foreign governments. And I think that this is uh, I think that this is a very serious concern, uh, because it doesn't take much for a government like uh, like say China, who for example has already built a a, a digital currency system to say, we're going to build a system that provides you with verifiable privacy. And forget about the fact that, that we have all of these human rights abuses in our country. Uh, we're going to build a system that allows you, uh, people in the UK, to interact with our currency privately. Uh, and won't that be really great because you can get away from the gaze of, uh, of, uh, of, of people wanting to track your, your purchasing habits? I, I think a lot of people would take that offer. Uh, and uh, and frankly, I think that this offer is even more compelling uh, in countries that perhaps don't have uh, a central bank that uh, that is trusted to maintain the monetary policy at the outset. Uh, so yes, I think that these are. Uh, I think that there is a. I, I think that there is a compelling argument for uh, for infrastructure that will protect people's people's rights. Uh, but how it's implemented is anyone's guess. I, I also think that uh, that people will will find a way. Uh, to transact privately, uh, irrespective of what infrastructure gets used, uh, and uh, and case in point, uh, we know that people uh, people who are sufficiently wealthy don't need uh, a uh, a privacy preserving payment system in order to conduct their transactions privately. They can either have proxies uh, do their transactions on their behalf, and certainly people with the resources will have many people who are willing to be proxies, or uh, they can transact using mechanisms that don't involve uh, financial payments, for example, using contracts. Uh, and I think that in these cases, we know that people with the resources will find a way to avoid surveillance. Uh, and, and we also know that, that criminals, in addition to, uh, to wealthy people, but non-wealthy criminals will also find a way to transact privately using stolen credentials or by coercing other people to conduct transactions on their behalf uh, using force. Uh, so I, I think that there are many risks here. Uh, do I believe that people will transact privately? I, I do believe that some people will transact privately. Do I think that we all will transact privately? Uh, well, I think that's anyone's guess. I think it's the responsibility of, of, uh, of governments and institutions to, to decide once and for all that uh, that privacy is something that is a human right, uh, that it's an inalienable human right, uh, and that uh, and that sufficiently powerful people will will get privacy, no matter what we do, uh, and that it's our task ultimately to uh, our task is to make sure that privacy is available for the most vulnerable in society, and right now. I don't think we're doing a very good job of that. Uh, we need to do much better. And uh, every time that I go to a cafe, 
or a restaurant here in London and have them say, we don't take cash, sir, so your money is no good here. I wonder whether we've we've whether we've built a uh, a, a system that that is designed uh, w without these people's interests in mind. That's a that's a, a really interesting point that you've made there, which is that I I guess some of the counter argument to all of this would be like, oh well, what's to stop you know criminals being able to do? But you're saying, well, look, criminals can already do stuff like it's not like they they already have their ways to you know preserve their privacy whether they're you know super rich people using proxies for you know offshore whatever they're doing or whether it's you know drug criminals or whatever like they're already doing that they have their ways and so put that to one side because actually the thing that we're missing out on is the the privacy for ordinary people yes that's right and uh and and I think that that's a real problem. Uh, and uh, and to be clear, I, I think that we need to resolve this problem in a variety of contexts, uh, not just the financial context, which we've spoken about a lot today, uh, but also in the communication context. Uh, and and I think that this starts with people recognizing that that uh, they have as many voices as they want. They need to stand up for having those different voices, and that they should be really wary. Uh, about being forced into relationships that aren't consensual. Uh, and, uh, and I think about uh, these kinds of brokered relationships by platforms and people being forced to uh, accept uh, privacy agreements in order to communicate with their friends. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, and uh, we need to do something about this. On that note, uh, thanks very much, Jeff, for coming on the Turing podcast. Um, it's been great speaking with you. Um, let me just uh, finish by asking um, if people want to find out more about your work, um, where can they do so? Um, and and this, this is a question we normally ask. It sounds a little bit silly in your case, but do you have social media that people can follow? <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid not. Uh, I think the best way to, uh, I think the best way to uh, uh, get in touch with me is to uh, send me email uh, or to send, uh, to send you email, Ed, and, uh, and uh, have, uh, and f have that forwarded to me. I would really appreciate that. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy to talk to anyone who, uh, who's interested to uh, explore this topic further. Uh, and, uh, and hopefully uh, you can find information uh, about my papers online uh, using a simple search. Uh, but if you have trouble, please feel free to reach out. Thanks very much, Jeff. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Ed. Thank you, Rachel. If you have an interesting topic you'd like featured on the show, a guest recommendation or a burning question, email podcast at cheering.ac.uk. The Turing Podcast is hosted by Ed Cowstrey, B. Costa Gomez and Joe Dungate and produced by Dan Whitfield for the Alan Turing Institute. Music for the podcast was provided by Jam and Sun. You can check out his latest releases at jamandsun.bandcamp.com.